and I guess back in the day it was like, well, who didn't have a brother or a sister or a cousin or somebody in the family run away and join a cult in San Francisco? That was Mission Creek houseboat resident Margaret Casey. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Every week on this podcast, you'll hear from photographers, poets, bartenders, and San Franciscans from all walks of life, telling stories, sharing personal histories, and trying to put into words what makes this city so special. Welcome to episode 29, part one. In this podcast, Margaret shares the story of her circuitous journey to San Francisco. It ends with the moment when she knew that this is where she belongs. Just a quick reminder that we're asking for your help to keep this podcast free for everyone. Pledge your support on our website at the bronze, silver, or gold level, and we'll send you some cool swag back. Go to storiedsf.com for more information. Here's Margaret. Okay, so it's 1988, um, and uh, one of my brothers has been living over here for a couple of years, and I was in a situation where I had only just recently been cleared by the uh, federal police on the charge of um, stealing a Picasso from the National Gallery in Victoria. Now, I'd just like to say at this point, I did not steal the painting. <laughs> For the record. <laughs> For the record. I don't think I'd be sitting here if, um, if I had. But a group of people calling themselves the Australian Cultural Terrorists had stolen uh, a recently acquired Picasso and then written a series of rather amusing ransom notes um, where they pilloried the choice to purchase this Picasso and uh, said that the money should have been spent on local artists and that they would not give the Picasso back until that funding was uh, forthcoming. So that's crime in Australia versus here. It's shoot, go to the church or the mall and shoot everyone. Right, a little different. Parents, little different. Art and yeah, for, yeah. Is that a good cause? And you know, write a clever, funny ransom note if you want. If you want to get on the front pages, I don't have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, long story short was that ultimately, through a series of processes, I was cleared, of course, and then um, I launched a freedom of information search and was able to get the statements that caused the judge to issue a search warrant for my house, um, and along with several other documents that put it in context. So I was able to figure out who it was that did it. And um, I think at this point in time, it for me, it ended up being it was much more of a me too moment than anything to do with art. And it's very hard to talk about anything once you drop the word Picasso into it. <laughs> it just it just skews it in a in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So what can I say? Thousands of dollars of therapy bills later, I'm able to articulate <laughs> that it was a me too moment. And when people ask me, well, why did those people go forth? and make those deliberately false statements to the police, the answer is, well, you would have to ask them. So anyway, needless to say, it's 1988 and I am ready to get the hell out of Dodge, not feeling a lot of love from my um, my uh, village of origin. So I decided that I would come over and I would visit my brother. And that's how I would do it. I'd never been to the United States before. Do you know what brought him 
here? Yes, he had actually been traveling around South America and had sent home uh, a nice big fat packet of cocaine for someone that got intercepted. Mm-hmm. Oh, he was guilty. <laughs> <laughs> so the advice came back to him that he needed to just stay away for a little bit longer mm-hmm. and um, and not engage. Do you know why he chose San Francisco, though, of all the places? He could yes, have? because interestingly enough, um, my eldest sister, I have a big family of like six brothers and sisters. My eldest sister in the 70s had run away to join a cult in San Francisco. And I guess back in the day it was like, well, who didn't have a brother or a sister or a cousin or somebody in the family run away and join a cult in San Francisco? So when it was decided that my brother David needed to stay away a bit longer, these old friends of my sister's were, um, you know summoned from the beyond and uh, so he could have a place a safe place to stay so so you're like you needed a change of scenery yes and your brother lived here yes where did he live where in the city he lived um at the corner of uh 16th and albion um in an old firehouse for people who remember the albion club it was kitty corner from there and at the time it was a nightclub it was called firehouse seven he had a gig there um, under the name of DJ Mink. And um, he lived in the tower part of the firehouse, the old lookout tower. Is this the building that's – you said uh, it's Kitty Corner from Albion. Now yeah, Delirium. but only because there's a sort of little jag in Albion. Is it, but is it right across that little alley from Kilowatt? Is that the building I'm thinking of? Yeah, Kilowatt. Yeah. Kilowatt's okay. what – the last name I remember it was called. It, that kilowatt is still called the kilowatt. Okay, so... A little different, but no, not no live music. Yeah, so back in yeah. the day it was Firehouse 7 and he was upstairs in the, in the lookout tower and the other neighbour at the front was Bear Magazine, which at the time was a very popular sort of hardcore um, gay magazine. So interesting mix of neighbours and it was right in the middle of the crack epidemic. So there were a lot of people literally crawling around on the streets and this was before pagers or cell phones and there were, so there were pay phones everywhere. And back in the day, if you wanted to score, you had to call your dealer first. So around every pay phone, there was always a cluster of people who we came to lovingly refer to as the jive turkeys. Um, I don't know why, but the name just it, it just fit. So people would call their dealer and then hang up and then wait for the dealer to call them back at the pay phone and then you could go and um, collect. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a lot of money at the time and, of course, I was very, very new. And, yeah, I spent a lot of time observing the jive turkeys and the um, the various things that would happen in the street. There was um, there was a lot of funny characters there. There was a guy named the Red Man, who had, was completely covered in some kind of red ochre, and he wore a hat, and he had a little sort of you know um, Gomez Adams type moustache, and he didn't do anything so much as he just was. So you would see him here and you'd see him there at Adobe Books and there was another guy named Swan, tall, lanky guy who lived in a tiny Volkswagen Beetle um, and he issued this newsletter. 
he, he, I guess he photocopied or whatever, but it had the tiniest handwriting you ever saw, like the size of an ant. So it was extremely biz- difficult to read this this manifesto that he put out every week. And he was letting you into his mind. He was. Yeah. He was, because you could barely get into his car for all the stuff that was in. There was another guy there right on the corner of uh, 16th and Valencia who sold newspapers at the front of a, a grocery store there. And he always had a, an enormous rat on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. And I never bought a newspaper from him. I just couldn't. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he was a fixture for many years. And then back at the firehouse, my brother's wife had, because uh, he had acquired a wife at this point in time, and um, she would refer to this person she called the crack princess. And according to her, the crack princess would keep her out of, would let her know if there was anything going on down in the street that that she should know about. So she, at one time I saw her, as many times that I saw her do this, like bring down a little plate of food for the cra- the crack princess, you know, like she was a cat, <laughs> she's gonna put out the food, and the cat would come by. But um, yeah, the crack princess was around for a long time. I don't know if she ever gave Marla the heads up about what was going on, what was going down in the street. But uh, she put a lot of store by the um, by uh, that method of uh, communication. So you're kind of almost airdropped into the middle of this world you just described. Yes. Welcome to San yes, Francisco. <laughs> truly. And I had not thought of myself as a naive person. And I had traveled extensively and done all kinds of things. And I think I was already, you know, in my late 20s. Um, but yeah, yeah, saw a lot of things that um, mm-hmm. really blew my mind. And you're like, yeah, this is where I belong. A kind of, sort of, yeah. <laughs> I'll spend a f- good 40 40- <laughs> Some odd years here, sure. Well, I recognized it as a place where people could, um, people had a lot of latitude, you know, in order, you had to be extremely weird before you could be considered weird. And that gave everybody a lot of room in which to play before they crossed the boundary into, you know, what I came to call the night shift. <laughs> And it didn't take long to realize I belonged to the day shift and I needed to just concentrate on making my way in the world via the day shift. Yeah. Um, I I like what you're just talking about with the weirdness and people pushing each other. It's like competitive weirdness. Yes, indeed. It's unspoken, but it's... But it was there. And so you could trip out down the street in your flowing robes or your colored hair or, you know, live in your dream. Um and That's one of the things I like to think is still here. It's diminished. I think it's, it's still, diminished. I, and yes, it is still here. Still part of the city. The tolerance is still here. And I think we have to, you know, we should really in some ways cherish these people. So you decided that you're on the night, on the day shift, excuse me. That's right. And I had the good fortune not long after that. Let's just say my, my brother's house was <laughs> was troubled and chaotic and, you know, they just threw everything on the floor. But I came, I met a person uh, named Paul Brown, who was one of the founding members of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Oh. He, he was Sister Logan Berry Frost. Okay. Because he wanted something that was sweet. Yeah. And um, he and I and a couple other people ended up in a big old Victorian house on Fell Street. I was going to ask in the, in the Western Edition. Yes. Area. So then I stayed in that Western Edition area for 
for quite a few years. And, of course, back in the day, you know, Western Edition wasn't so nice either. There was a lot of rundown projects along H Street and Page Street, and um, it was a pretty sketchy neighborhood. And around that time... A lot of night shifters. A lot of night shifters. <laughs> a lot. And um, so during that time, I had decided that I would... I really was... The only path left for me was to be a starving poet. Okay. Now, I don't think you can pick a more competitive field than starving poets. It's brutal. The prizes are few and far between. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Especially here. This, it's a poet's town. It is. And yeah. I had had the good fortune to meet uh, Diane de Prima, who was, of course, one of the Beat Generation and a very great poet and author in her own right. And I had started doing, like, workshop classes with her, but then we became close And I would go to her house once a week to help her sort things out, you know, help her with her tax returns, help her, you know, get things edited and organized. And she was incredibly um, generous with herself. Uh, She had, there was something about her that was, um, that embraced you. And, And she gave generously of herself. So she whether she knows it or not, was huge in my life for just providing that kind of um, maternal warmth. And, she, and of course, she had been one of the diggers, that radical group that existed uh, around the hate area in the late 60s and early 70s. And she told me that, that because I was a little... Uh, I might as well say, I was a little ignorant about race relations. It wasn't that I was insensitive, but I didn't underst- didn't have a familiarity with how it played out here in the United States and specifically in San Francisco. And she told me that when she had been married to um, a black poet, Amiri Baraka, at one point in time. So she had an insight into life as a black American she told me that what they would do was if you saw a young black man um, pulled over by the police or being questioned or harassed in any way, you, the thing to do was you went right up and said, can I help you? Is there something I can do for you? Can I call someone? Um, and that you just straight up intervened and did what you could to uh, open it up. I think these days everyone's just afraid of being shot. Um, so it's a little little uh, intimidating. But also back then, that area, that was the first time I heard of people uh, kidnapping yuppies' dogs, right? It's, I think it, it was birthed on Hayes Street, actually. <laughs> I don't, I've never heard this. <laughs> yeah, a couple of people got their fancy dog, um, dog napped. You know, and then that post, you know, missing posters, and then they'd get a call from someone like, I got your dog, but (laughs) if you want him or her back, got to pay. But one night I was walking home from Diane's house. She lived on Page and Laguna, just near the Zen Center there. And I lived up on, like, at Fallon Central. So I was walking home past the sketchy areas and I just came to the start of the panhandle. It was dark. And somewhere in the park, someone was playing a saxophone. 
and playing it beautifully. And it seemed so magical, you know, so many contradictions and then just this, this, this spot of pure beauty that I think it was that, that was the defining moment for me that I felt I, I, I have to be here. That was Margaret Casey. Join us Thursday when Margaret will tell us about getting her houseboat. Music for the podcast is by Otis McDonald. Film photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to learn about some of the stuff we do besides this podcast. Find the nearly 80 episodes on our website, storiedsf.com, which is also where you can now go to pledge your support for the show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show for us. Send comments or suggestions to storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.